0: Hello, I'm Denny Somak. I'm a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author. And this is The Rock Podcast. Now, I have thousands of interviews collected over the years, and I try and bring you the greatest stories and interviews in rock as told by the artists themselves. On this episode, I have a classic conversation with Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears. Now, he formed the group with Roland Orzabal in England, in 1981. Their first album, The Hurting, was released in March, 1983. They became very popular right from the start, released a number of hits, got a lot of exposure on MTV, and then in 1991, they had an acrimonious falling out and split up. So let's fast forward to 2000, where they reestablished contact with each other and decided to work on a new album. Their most recent album is The Tipping Point, Released in February of 2022, and it's their seventh studio album, the band's first since Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, which was released almost 18 years ago. It topped the charts almost immediately, and that's when I decided to share this interview from my classic rock archive. When this conversation with my London correspondent was conducted in 1985, songs from The Big Chair, their second studio album, was being released. That album peaked at number one in the US. It's the one including Shout, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and Head Over Heels. It remains their best-selling album to date. Anyway, here is Kurt Smith as he talks about that album, the inspiration behind their songs, and how the band prepares for a world tour.
1: Where did you get the name for the band to begin with?
2: Um, well, I put it in, in its short form because it's a very long answer. But it came from a book called *The Prisoners of Pain* by Arthur Janov. It's just a chapter I read in the book, and the name sort of came out from the chapter. It wasn't actually written down, but I got the sort of the idea for it from that.
1: Considering all the noises that uh, Tears for Fears make and the uh, amazing sounds that you get on your recordings, there's only two of you in the band, basically. I know you've got a lot of backing musicians that help you out on some of the tracks.
2: Mm. Yeah, there is. Well, there, there's only two of us that are signed, although there's four of us that always work together in the studios. myself and Roland. There's Ian Stanley, is our keyboard player and co-writer, who works with us all the time, and uh, Manny, our drummer, and we work with Chris. So it's, it's normally four people in the studio, not just two people. It's sort of a bit misleading.
1: Well, a brief history lesson, let's go back in time a bit to The Hurting, which was a number one album for you. Were you, I'm sure you were pleased that you had a number one, but were you surprised that you got it that far up the charts?
2: Um, yes and no. I mean, obviously you never really believe you're going to have a number one because it seems too good to believe. But we, we, we thought it would be a, a, a big hit because of, purely because of England goes on the singles market, you know how many albums you sell a lot of the time, and we'd had two hits. So we thought, well, it's got to, it's got to sell some records. But, um, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise, but it was a very nice surprise.
1: Does it put pressure on you the second time round so that subsequent releases, i.e. singles and albums, you kind of expect them to do as well?
2: It puts a lot of pressure on you, um, not, not through expecting them to do so well, but uh, the pressure of, of, of outside forces, record company people like that trying to make you release another single very quickly to, to keep your success rate going. Um, which is why we've taken so long over this album because we were pressured into doing things we shouldn't have done and we pressured ourselves into doing them as well it wasn't just anyone else's fault so um, you know, we kind of went round in circles for a while not knowing what we really wanted to do because the success same co- came so quickly and we were so busy that we never really got any time off to be objective about anything so um, it wasn't until last year that... Um, we took some time off at the beginning of the year, a few months, to, just to get the, the space to be objective about things and decide what, what we wanted to do for a second album. Because it would have been very easy to go on and make The Hurting Part 2, you know, but nowhere near as good, because we'd done it once already. So we took some time off, wrote some new material, and um, you know, we found it exciting doing something new. We wanted to do something new, we wanted to progress, you know, and not just stay doing the same kind of music.
1: Do you take a, a great deal of interest in in when singles are released, for example, and make sure that uh, various territories around the world are all in line with each other and that nobody's cheating by getting import releases in before you actually bring out the domestic copy of that same song
2: yeah very a very big interest because it's part of um because our the business and our careers depends on the business sense in a way um, i 'd rather get involved in all that and uh, make direct decisions about those sort of things. Otherwise, other people do it for you, and I, f- I don't like other people having control over what you do. You know, I'd rather we actually were involved in it.
1: Well, now you've, um, you've thought about uh, the difference between The Hurting and, and the ideas that you put on that record. Um, you've moved along now. How do you see the changes in the songs that you've written and recorded with the new album, Songs from the Big Chair?
2: Um, I think they're musically a lot more mature, um, in the last couple of years, musically, we've become a lot more competent. We can play better, the songwriting's better. And um, we're far more experienced in the studio. Plus, we've learnt not to get wrapped up in technology, which we did a lot on the first album, because it was a big thing then, all the new electronic equipment that was coming out. It's very easy to get self-indulgent with that sort of thing, without thinking about the fact that the public don't really know the difference. You know, unless you are, unless you're a computer buff, say...
1: Do you think it's also easy to allow the machines to take over and actually uh, tell you what uh, sort of sounds they want to make rather than what you want to get out of it?
2: Uh, yeah, quite easily. M- more so the fact that um, the, I, the fact that it is an electronic instrument and brand new can dictate that you should use it. If you know what I mean? You feel like this is something brand new, we've got to put it on our record and um, most people wouldn't really know they're not, i mean no one's going to listen to our album and go wow that's the new emulator on that album you know no one's going to really know that so we decided on this album to to become a bit more earthy and go back to our old instruments a lot more and you just use synthesizers as an instrument as opposed to a fashion
1: it's funny you mentioned that about um not wanting to do something uh, when the Fairlight synthesizer came out a couple of years ago, everyone was yeah. talking about it and using it. And interestingly enough, the new Phil Collins album, No Jacket Required, there's a small credit at the bottom of it after he says thank you to the world and everyone else. He says there is no Fairlight on this album. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, there is Fairlight, I know. I was just, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, now, where does the title of the album come from? Songs from the Big Chair. It's from a, f- a
2: film. Well, it was a book originally called Sybil. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. It's... Uh... It's, about, it's a true story about an American woman who had sixteen different personalities, and um, she goes to an analyst basically, and all these personalities come out that she never knew about because her defence through life, because she had a, a, to say the least, a dreadful upbringing. She had a very, very cruel mother, and um, when she enjoyed something, she wasn't allowed to ever do it again. Basically, so she hid all these personalities inside of her, and there was this just—it was a, a scene where she's in her anal- this analyst's office and The Big Chair was something she used to sit in with her and cuddle up in because she used to feel safe and not threatened by the outside world. And the reasons we used songs of The Big Chair as the title were... There's two reasons. One, because it sounds quite humorous and that's a side of us that no one's ever seen before. And two, um, we got tired of critics knocking us for what we did and for the blatant emotions that we put across. And it's we just got to the stage where we were so positive about this album that we're just saying this is our second album this is what we're doing now take it or leave it you know but don't constructive criticism will accept you know at any time but we, we've gone off or we hate the fact that people just knock us because we don't happen to be hip at the time
1: so the title of the album is taken from Sybil yeah. does that is that where the um, similarity and the comparison ends in in the songs, are they about her life are they songs that are inspired by, by her experiences or, or are they entirely different things
2: um, the, no, the, the songs on the album are, are entirely different um, well, different in the sense they're not about that film the album title, as I've just explained we used the album title for those two reasons and it was a carry on from the B-side of Shout the B-side of the single Shout is called The Big Chair which is a song written around that film um, and we just took that title and used that theme for the album
1: the songs that uh, Tears for Fears write about are not uh, the common or garden love songs. There's all sorts of things, like the working week and uh, songs about mother and, and the way uh, people are used, I guess. Your view of the world is a, a changing view of the world. Is it inspired by Yanoff yeah. and, uh, and Sybil? Those, that's a film and some books. Uh, are, they in, are your ideas inspired by books and films mostly, or are they also from your own experiences?
2: um both really they can be inspired by by books and films um but the way they're inspired is those trigger off emotions in you that you can directly relate like you can directly relate to those films because you feel a certain affinity with them um so they're they're mainly our own emotions our own personal feelings triggered off by other things i think
1: what about your um your musical influences having listened to the uh, the new album i hear shades of Laurie anderson in there i don't know if you're inspired by her work but she's a very unusual avant-garde composer in many ways
2: yeah i mean i, I love Laurie anderson i think she's brilliant absolutely stunning um the album is a i mean influences it's a very large mixture of influences I and mean, if you listen to i believe which is heavily influenced by robert white in fact is even dedicated to him and um and a lot of other people. I mean, to start, when we recorded the first album. We were influenced by one kind of mu- kind of Talking Heads, Peter Gabriel, that side of very cerebral music. <coughs> and um, this album is 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 a combination of other influences because in the last year we've we've widened our scopes as such and are listening to things that we never would have listened be- before to before, like um, you know Bruce Springsteen or ZZ Top or Steely Dan, just just to see what we can draw out of it, you know, more than anything else.
1: And perhaps not, as you go, going back to what you were saying about the title of the album, not be accused of being too intellectual and serious about things.
2: Yeah, this is it. I mean, I think the best thing that bands like ZZ Top and Van Halen could have done for me is the fact they've brought the humour back into it, yeah.
1: And a bit of showbiz too. This is
2: it, yeah. I mean, a lot of showbiz. I think I think we're a lot more relaxed than we were. Um, our first album was, was a result of us being... It's because we got a lot of very deep feelings on that album because it was a big release for us to be able to record those songs, you know, have the money to do it, have a record company behind us to promote it, and we were very self-indulgent because it was, you know, a big step for us to be able to do that. And now we've done it, we've gone past that. We've we're, we've become a lot more relaxed, and um, I think it shows on the record, to be honest.
1: Included on the album is a song called Broken, which is a live track, I believe, isn't
2: it? Yeah. The way we do it live is we do Broken that's segued into Head Over Heels that goes back into Broken. So how we've done it on our album is um, is we start with Broken, which is a recorded version of Broken, go into Head Over Heels, and when we come back in with Broken, that is recorded live at Hammersmith Odeon.
1: You were talking about the sounds that you've made on the album and how you've tried to move away from being too electronic. Perhaps you were a bit more involved in that end of things. It, certainly if you, as you say, were inspired by Peter Gabriel or um, Talking Heads, and... Uh, I guess they're people that have worked with electronics. If you've mo- moved away from that, do you do you think it's going to be easier for you to perform the newer songs live because they're a little rockier and a bit more basic?
2: Um, I think so. Um, it's a bit hard to say, having just done one day's rehearsal so far, which was yesterday. Uh, yeah, but the old the old album was easier to perform live. Easy to perform live um, purely because we changed it live. I think the old album's better live. You know, I mean, it's a lot tougher live, and and we bring out our points over. Um, in a far stronger way, so um, I think it'll be. I mean, it's easier because a lot of this is obvious, is is can obviously be, be translated live. But the first album still sounds good live. I think.
1: Well, now if you go out and buy the uh, the cassette version of the new album, you get some bonus tracks on it. Now I've listened to it, and it's quite unusual because I think you've contained some of the B sides of your singles on the cassette, haven't you?
2: That's right. Yeah, we've, we've we have the album on one side of the cassette and five of our B sides on the other plus a, a strange mix of a part of the working hour.
1: Why did you do that? Was it just because you didn't feel that B-Sides ever get any exposure and you, and you wanted to give people a, another look at uh, the music of Tears for Fears?
2: Yeah, well, it was exactly that. I mean, B-Sides, people don't listen to B-Sides that much. And um, and it's a side of us that I think I would like to portray to people because, we, you know, this is a side of... It is self indulgence our b sides I mean they are self indulgence but um, I think it's a side that people you know should see and would be interested in because it 's completely different to us working in in a studio on on a, on a project and when I say it 's self indulgence in a way it can be a lot less self indulgent than an album because you have to think well i 've got to like this piece of vinyl for you know a year or two years whenever whatever and um, the B-sides we go in and we do in 10 hours without thinking about it because you're not worried about what the person on the street thinks about it. So um, it's a side of us that is, it's nice to see, I think.
1: A break from tradition as well, I think, because uh, you don't actually hear many albums or cassettes where people give you more than you pay for, which is nice, in a way, from a consumer's point of view. The other break from tradition that uh, I noticed with The Hurting, in America in particular, was that uh, radio programmers weren't quite sure which track to play mm-hmm. off the album, so they ended up playing five or six tracks, which gave the album, rather than specific songs, a lot more... Exp-
2: yeah, um, that's, that's true, yeah. I mean, this album is a, and this album, the idea of this album, when we went in to record it, apart from the positivity of what direction we wanted to pursue um, we came to the record company and said here's eight songs, these are what we're going to do which is a very positive step to take because normally they want you to record like 12 or 13 and and then choose the album but we were so positive that we wanted to choose the album before we even recorded it and it's a combination of eight songs that we love Um, so it is an album of eight very good tracks I think
1: you sound very determined and professional about the band and its, and its future. It, it sounds to me as if when you first formed the group, you knew where you were going and the management that look after you were told by you rather right. than you rather than them telling you what you wanted to do about your career. That seems the best possible way you could have it.
2: Uh, yeah, it is. I think that if you take control from the start... I mean, on The Hurting, it was very hard for us to take control and we didn't have that much control over it purely because it was our first album and we had... There was nothing to back us up, you know, if we want to come in and demand something, you know, why the hell should they listen to us? Um, But now, obviously, we're we're at the state where we can, you know, have a control over what we do. And um, we are very interested in, in doing, you know, in pursuing the business side of things, or not necessarily pursuing, but keeping control of it. Because, like I said, I asked other people to do it for you, and I'd rather know what's going
1: on. You mentioned that uh, you've just put a day's um, rehearsing in for the tour, which comes up very shortly. How do you see the concert tour uh, coming across to your, your fans? Is it going to be a mixture of old and new songs, and what will the stage performance be like?
2: It'll be a, a mixture of old and new songs, part of the old album and, and all of the new album. Um, stage performance won't be a big show, because uh, last one went out with very Lights and things like that, and it's very easy to rely on on those... Effects to um, impress the audience. And so you get a bit lazy, you know. I mean, if the very lights are zooming around, you can stand still and it still causes a lot of movement so people get excited. This time we've moved the the staging in and we're a seven piece band, and um, it's up to us to entertain. You know, I see live work as entertainment. People want to come along and be entertained. You know, if they don't want to be entertained as such, they can sit at home and listen to the record. so and I get very excited by it because it's not as precious as recording an album. It's like for an hour and a half a night, and that's it. It's over with, and um, it's a great release for us to do that. I think so. It'll be it'll be a good show. will be. I mean, I'm confident that it'll be good because the band are very good.
1: Who do you appeal to? What what sorts of fans do you have? Uh, is it the sort of teenage market? Because of, in light of your singles success, or is it a, a very mixed kind of audience, mixed age groups as well as uh, interests?
2: It's a very, very mixed age group, uh, and it depends on where in the world you go, which is very strange. I mean, last time we went to Europe, and our audience was a lot older. I think this time we go to Europe, it might be a bit younger, because we've had a great single success there since. Um, In England, um, it seems like mainly university students. I mean, I never knew what kind of audience we appealed to, because you can't really see all the audience. You can only see the few rows, and they're full of teenagers normally. Um, and then I saw a film of us live, and it panned over the audience, and there's a lot of old people there, you know. So I think it's a very varied audience.
1: How do you feel about that side of you, the personal side of relating to an audience and the way that they have a perception of you? Do you, do you like that relationship?
2: Um, it's it's a relationship that um, I find interesting because, interesting in the sense that people do have a preconceived idea, of, uh, you know, of what you are going to be like, but. Um, Inevitably, mo- mo- well, most of the time, you you are something different. So, it's I find it um, a-, a nice experience to go on stage and try and portray yourselves and convince them that you're not the way they think you are in a way. Um, it's, it's hard to change their minds, but I find it a challenge.
1: <laughs> the business that you work in is one of change, uh, success and failure, and uh, one is consumed very quickly, and you're the latest fashion, and then suddenly mm-hmm. it's somebody else's turn. Have you got some secret formula yourself about how to weather that process, of how to perhaps uh, remain topical and popular?
2: Yeah, well, the secret formula is to record good records. I mean, that's as simple as that, as far as I'm concerned.
1: But supposing people don't buy them, even if you think they're good records, and and therefore radio stations don't play them and, and you stop being the focus of attention...
2: Well, if I still love them, then I'll continue to make them. I I refuse to make records to cater for other people. Um, I find it very hard. I find it very dishonest. Personally, I can't do it because I can't put any feeling into it. I just have faith in the general public that if there's a good record released, people will recognise it for a good record.
1: Well, Tears for Fears is the vehicle by which you and Roland are working at the moment. Do you have plans to diversify your musical interests, perhaps work as solo artists or with other musicians?
2: uh yeah well i was in these two <laughs> in the last two weeks, which we were I was supposed to have off, <laughs> which I, turns out because the single was such a big success in Europe place that I had to do a lot of press work. I was going to be recording a solo single, but that 's not for um not to pursue not i wasn 't going to pursue it in any depth as such it was purely um, for fun, so that I could get out of working in the Tears for Fears format and, um, and have a good time more than anything else. I'm in a studio without I to worry about answering to the name Tears for Fears. So, um, yeah, I'm sure in the future we'll do things on our own, um, but there's no direct plans at the moment because we're too involved in this and we're still very interested in it.
1: Your interests and inspirations have come from people like Peter Gabriel, David Byrne Talking Heads, Laurie Anderson, we mentioned earlier. Are they people you'd like to work with at some point in the future?
2: Um, yeah, maybe at some point in the future I'll feel confident enough to. At the moment I really don't feel confident enough to work with it. I, don't feel, I feel they're in a different way. Um, yeah, I would like to think now that we will improve to a standard whereby I can feel confident enough to get involved with other musicians of a higher standard like that, I think.
1: Well now you've released two singles from the album So Far Shout and Mother's Talk and the third single comes out very shortly. It's called "Everyone." Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It sounds like it's an anthem for tinpot philosophers, people standing <laughs> on soapboxes.
2: Um, yeah, it kind of is a tongue-in-cheek way of looking at it like that. Um, it is a very light-hearted song and very bouncy and it is, um, it is taking the mickey out of those kind of people really, yeah. <laughs>
0: That's our conversation with Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears. I hope you enjoyed hearing this interview from my archives. So thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And you can find us on Facebook and at the website, therockpodcast.com. You can also send your comments to me at hello at therockpodcast.com. I love your feedback. That's it for now. So long.